welcome to the Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. I'm Anya Crittenden, a writer for Gay Star News, and with me I am joined by both my co-hosts because HT is finally back from vacation. Welcome back, HT. I'm back. Well, I was back last Sunday, but I was too jet-lagged to say anything coherent on a podcast. But hi, I'm Hua Chen Bui. I'm a writer for Slash Film and a pop culture journalist in the D.C. area. And I'm Willoughby Dobbs, a filmmaker in the D.C. area, and I haven't left the country in a long time. <laughs> so, in anticipation of the upcoming family film of Thanksgiving weekend, Coco, we are going to be talking about a formative movie studio of our childhood, Pixar. So Pixar is one of the most influential parts of our childhood animation sort of history and one of the pioneering um, studios of three of CG animation. Uh, it has so many huge hits and so many classic films, but we're going to be talking about its legacy, our favorite films, and whether Pixar is in a creative rut right now. So first off, let's talk about our own favorite Pixar films. I'm sure you guys have met, have some. Um, shall we go on a round table? Yeah, talk let's about do it. our top ones. Um, what, how many are we doing for top Pixar films? Oh, I I can just do one. Let's do one then. Oh wait, now I have to think about it. <laughs> Anya, you go first. Okay. Um. So I know that like there are so many to love. Um. You know, I can name drop Finding Nemo and Incredibles and everything is ones that I really love. Um, but my all-time favorite, which I thought was going to be topped by Inside Out for a while, but I determined that it hadn't been, is Toy Story 2. Um, and it's usually, I always feel like Toy Story 2 is like the stepchild of the Toy Story franchise and that it's most people's least favorite out of the three, but it's my favorite Pixar film. Um... Arguably because Woody is one of my favorite characters of all time. Like, I love Woody. I have Woody Mickey ears. I have a Woody talking doll that has Anya on his boots with the end backwards, just like Andy. I have a lot of, like... Oh, that's adorable. <laughs> I have a lot of Woody memorabilia because he's my favorite, and I get very defensive of him because a lot of people think he's a jerk, which he's not. Well, he... He's kind of a jerk. But he's played in the first by America's movie. Tom Hanks. He's played by Tom Hanks. He can't be a jerk. He's um, America's dad. Fun fact: When I saw the Toy Story 20th anniversary panel at D23 uh, a handful of years back, they talked about how Woody was actually way worse in the beginning. He was like really mean, and when they were like doing original storyboards and stuff, they were like, "Oh, he's not like you can't root for him now. Like he's too mean." <laughs> <laughs> and so they had to like tone that back and make Woody more likable, um, and. I think he's likable because he's my favorite. And so Toy Story 2 is really about his origin. Um, and I just think it's really fun and great. So Toy Story 2 is my favorite with Inside Out as a close second. Okay. Willoughby, what is your favorite Pixar film? Oh, Toy Story 3 by a mile. Um, it hit me at that sweet, sweet age of 17 going into college in 2010 and the whole, you know, Andy in that movie is dealing with going to college and packing up his old room and getting ready to move out for the first time and, you know, putting away his toys. And the literally from 
like right after the the little nice little prologue with the train sequence like once it went into the um montage of Andy growing up with his toys I started crying I've just I was crying from that moment on for, for the rest of the film essentially especially when they were in the uh landfill accepting death oh man um that that scene just thinking about it I I tear up a little. I'm, you know, I'm getting a little verklempt right now. Um, <laughs> and so, like, all, like, I think Toy Story 3 is definitely the most personal uh, Pixar film for me. It's definitely the one that hits me the hardest emotionally, um, creatively. Actually, not creatively. I think Inside Out is the most creative one I think they've done. Um, but just in terms of, like, these toys are maturing and accepting fate and all of this and like you know learning to move on to another owner there's just a lot of a lot of like themes and life lessons in toy story 3 that hit close to home so i definitely have to make it my favorite so i think my favorite pixar film and this is something i'm probably going to waffle around for it's going to change throughout my life i'm sure um my favorite one is up so it's definitely strongly on the shoulders of that first 10 minutes of that film. I often rate my favorite movies based on how much they made me cry. And boy, Up made me cry. I bawled. But not just in the way that, you know, sometimes Pixar is accused of being emotionally manipulative or whatever. They really know how to hone into our deepest, darkest emotions. But the way that the first 10 minutes of Up plays is like a silent film, and it really takes advantage of the fact that film is a visual medium. And, you know, it's some, I've, all, I've often talked about how animation really stretches the boundaries of what you can do with cinema and what you can do with storytelling, and I think that Up is the epitome of that. It not only has that perfect 10-minute sequence of um, Ellie and Carl meeting as kids and growing old together and having to give up and sacrifice their dreams of adventure for, you know, the mundanities of real life and, you know, the tragedies of, of no, of having no children. But, I forgot where I was going, but it's just, it's told so beautifully and it's so wonderfully animated. It's just like, Every single frame in that film is like a painting sometimes. It's just like the the attention to detail in Up. It's one of my favorite aspects of Pixar. They put so much attention to detail and every leaf is immaculate. It's just, um, and it's so creative. Like that idea of an ma- old man, actually old man, just like taking a bunch of balloons and flying off to the Amazon. I love that. It's so, it's so whimsical. It's the perfect marriage of whimsy and emotion, and that's what I like about Up. So let's talk a little bit about Pixar's strengths and legacy. We talked, we touched on that a little during our little, our brief uh, descriptions of our favorite Pixar films, and it has to do with emotion and tapping into uh, what makes life so grand, essentially, and the beautiful animation of it all, too. Like, Pixar is known for taking two to three years, at least, for each film. They create new technologies for each movie. They really put a lot of work and research into each film, and more so than, like, DreamWorks, for example, which um, churns out maybe one movie a year, For but 
Pixar really puts all their effort into one film that they're focused on at a time. So, uh, what do you think? Uh, what do you guys think are the strengths of Pixar and the legacy of Pixar? Well, I think it's this some of the, like the strengths of, of Pixar are, is its imaginative, creative wonders with computers, and de- you know the details that come with you know creating like Merida's hair and Brave. Brave might not have been the best Pixar movie ever, but I do think it's one of the most uh, like creatively inventive ones, especially the fact that they had to build like two computer programs just to do her hair. Um, and I think you know they're they're basically they are the most innovative company in the la- of the past I'd say twenty five years. You know since Pixar became a thing. You know which is an offshoot of ILM and which was also very in- uh, innovative because they made Star Wars and they've made a bunch of computer graphics and stuff since. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like, you know, Toy Story is a movie that's, what, 22 years old now? And it's it still brings warmth and emotion and humanity to these literally lifeless toys. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they do that because they're artists. You know, they take the, they take ones and zeros, literally, and make them into art. And I think that's beautiful. Yeah, I want to uh, hop on that train of thought. Um, haha, like inside out. Um, <laughs> um, and yeah, I think one of the biggest things about Pixar is just how um, they are with technology and how inventive and how much they've kind of led um, the progress on CG and technology and animation. Um, this summer I recently read the book The Pixar Touch by David Price, which is basically an origin story for Pixar. Um, and it's really good and it talks about kind of their commitment to technology and their struggles starting up and, you know, just how they accomplished everything they have. Um, so I really recommend that book if you are a Pixar fan. Um, but I think for me the other thing is, is that Pixar has never there's often this thing about animation. We've talked about animation before and how much we love it and defend it. And there's this, you know, this idea by some people that, you know, animation is inherently a genre for children um, and somehow lesser than. And Pixar has never believed that. Pixar's movies have always been for everyone of all ages. And they've always been mature in that they don't dumb themselves down for kids um, you know, they tackle pretty deep themes, and but they still make them fun for kids, and they're still colorful and exciting to watch. And so I think just as storytellers, Pixar is very accomplished and very fascinating in how they're able to straddle that line and do it so well for most of the time. Yeah, now that I think about it, I feel like Pixar, um, at its inception, could have just chosen to remain a purely technical like VFX yeah. studio. But they chose to go the route of storytelling and they became one of not only the mo- one of the most innovative animation studios pushing the envelope for all types of CG animation. Like after Pixar started using CG animation in uh, family films with Toy Story, it became a huge phenomenon and all other studios like hopped on the yeah. train. But not only that, but they, you know, 
always pushed for really complex, really nuanced storytelling. And you're right, never dumbing it down for kids because they never assumed yeah. that kids were dumb, which is what I love about Pixar. I agree. I agree completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, they have a built-in audience now, too, because they used to be the uh, the whippersnapper studio, you know, the, un- the underdog of all things, uh, especially compared to Disney. But then, you know, Disney went and bought Pixar at the end, and now they have access to a lot of their uh, technologies. But um, I want to bring up a sort of comparison that uh, between Disney and Pixar that people have been drawing somewhat recently, especially in terms of Pixar's creative output. So I'm using fancy words right now, but a lot of people have accused or uh, accused Pixar of sort of becoming, being in a rut right now, you know, creatively. So their movies still do well at the box office because, box office because they have that built-in audience. But they've also really been relying on sequels to their larger hits, Finding Dory, Monsters University. Their original films are somewhat mediocre, The Good Dinosaur, an exception being Inside Out. So, Anya, you were t- talking a little bit about this at the podcast, before the podcast, can you? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that, like, um, since, probably since around 2011 when Cars 2 came out, Pixar has kind of plateaued a little bit, because you had Cars 2 and then you had Brave, which is, Willoughby mentioned, um... Uh, you know, creatively is really great, but it's not their strongest film. It's also it was also their first film that was led solely by a female character, um, and so it's disappointing that it wasn't better. But then you had Moss University, and then Inside Out, and The Good Dinosaur. So like, I think they've kind of have hit a plateau of sorts. But at the same time, I feel like a every studio in Hollywood does this. Um, you always ebb and flow between being on a high and falling a bit and then climbing back up. I mean, look at Disney in the early 2000s. That was the time of, like, Home on the Range and Chicken Little. It was not a good time for Disney. Home on the Range single-handedly killed 2D hand-drawn yeah. animation at Disney. Um, and then they <laughs> started really coming sad. back. Was Meet the Robinsons Disney? Meet the Robinsons. It was. Robinsons and I actually Disney. like Meet the Robinsons, yeah. but it was very, it was very much a small film by them oh bolt was, was also disney so that was right? their like yeah. one of their with miley cyrus but then they started coming back with princess and the frog and then frozen and tangled yeah and, and tangled mm-hmm. we of can't course not. Tangled. Tangled, which is my favorite of the last few years of disney so like now they're on the rise again and, um, and i feel like they also mm-hmm. learned from pixar storytelling so i think that pixar also didn't john lasseter like Start yeah, well, Don Lasseter is um, president of both now. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, John Lasseter was kind of the, the main point man at Pixar. He basically kind of led the company to the fame that it uh, it is at today and, like, the emotional and nuanced storytelling it's at today. But um, after Disney bought Pixar, he kind of took on larger roles, and that's some people point to that as being sort of the reason that Pixar is plateauing because he's no longer overseeing all their projects. And Disney is kind of in a new renaissance um, with its uh, yeah. 3D so, but I films. don't think Pixar is nearly in such a bad state as some people and some articles have implied. I forget if it was, I think it might have been the Atlantic 
that did an yeah that did an article it was about the Atlantic, Pixar being like a rut and everything, and it's pretty harsh. Um, and I think some things are true, but I don't think it's nearly as dire as people seem to make it out to be. Um, I think. Yeah, for reports of Pixar's death yeah, are largely I think exaggerated. Inside Out, which <laughs> while it while Toy Story two is my like personal favorite, I think Inside Out is objectively their best film. Um, next to probably mm-hmm. yeah. Wally. Um, and I think that shows that they are still very much a strong creative storytelling team. And like HT said, it takes a long time to create films. And I almost wonder, because we had Inside Out in mm, 2015, and now we're getting Coco two years later. And then... And The Good Dinosaur was also yeah, 2015, that one but it was had delayed. a lot it of production. Been, it should have come out. It had an entirely different cast than the one they ended up with. It was like it became a whole new film. So I think that's mm-hmm. why that one didn't do well. I actually somewhat have a theory. Maybe do you guys know about the um, whole idea of like one for me, one for you in Hollywood? No. Like a quid pro quo. Yeah, where like a director or someone or an actor will do like a big film, so then they can like finance their smaller oh, film. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. I don't think it's necessarily the same as that, but I almost wonder if sequels are easier to make because they already have a built-in universe and built-in characters and a cast, and so they're easier. They don't have to, like, start from the very bottom, and so they make them kind of in between while they're working on their original films, which take a lot longer to make, but they still have to have some sort of output. And so I wonder if that's sequels kind of just help prop them up like some of them are really good like toy story 2 and 3 as we mentioned um so i just wonder if maybe because they take less time they're kind of just supplemental to the original ones that get released every few years i think so and i think i think in one part it's like if they want to keep you know producing movies like pixar Pixar and Disney both have a really good, like, one-a-year or one-a-year plan of, like, one of each come out each year. And for a while, that wasn't the case because movies just couldn't be made as quickly. You know, animated movies just couldn't be made as quickly as they could now. But, like, they've got such a large team that they could be, ha- be working on several movies at once. So by the time, you know, you know, last, last you no, know, this year, Cars 3 came out, but Coco is also coming out. And last year it was Finding Dory, and the year before that was The Good Dinosaur. Inside Out and The Good Dinosaur. So, like, they've obviously got a large, they've got several production teams going on in each movie. Mm -hmm. And I think for, they obviously want to dedicate more of their strengths to their original films. But I think to keep, like, I mean, this is cynical, but to keep profits up, you know, to release movies that are half made with you know computer engines and character designs and you know story plots and everything that are like half finished because the sequels the way you just take the you t- just take literally just to take existing ip and do something more with it whereas with inside out like inside out looks nothing like any other other pixar films because it's like a brand new like you know creative engine and all that stuff so like it makes sense from a company perspective to put out sequels, but I think, you know, it gets lost in the creativity of it all because, I mean, I haven't seen Cars 2 and 3, but I've heard they're just not great. 
but I think Toy Story is like their flagship. So like they dedicated time to Toy Story 2 and 3 to make them work. And I think that, you know, Incredibles 2 is coming out in a couple of years. You know, these legacy sequels of Pixar are, you know, are starting to become like better. Like I liked Finding Dory. Monsters University was okay. It had some interesting themes. Um, so like they're taking these existing sequels from the 2000s and the 90s when they were like a, a small little successful uh, creative company and now they're a juggernaut owned by Disney. And so they can take those existing properties and do more with them while still working on their their passion projects. And let's not like downplay the fact that people have been begging for an incredible sequel for years. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it is one of Pixar's most highly anticipated films coming out. Um, I will also go on the record to say I am a staunch defender of Toy Story 4. <sighs> and anyone out there who's not can fight me. I have I don't very fight mixed you. thoughts on yeah. Toy Story 4. I don't want to fight you, Anya, but I just think that Toy Story 3 was such a perfect closing to that chapter. It was so good. A chapter. I know. A I chapter, know. which is not an entire story. But I think... But uh, I don't, I'm not ready for a, no, a whole other story. I think it's fine to start telling new stories. Yeah. Yeah. A rom-com between Woody and Bo Peep. It's everything I've ever wanted. You have see, that in a short. And Rashida Jones is writing it. No, Anya, I agree that the idea sounds great. But at the same time, the ending of Toy Story 3 left me a puddle on the floor of the movie theater for, like, 15 minutes. They had to, like, mop me up and put me back together. You know, it was just... I was done. I was... That's a great image. I was finito. There was nothing left of Willoughby after the end of Toy Story 3 because I cried myself to nothing. Because that movie is a joy and a gem and, good lord, they accepted death. (laughs) I think this is where I fundamentally don't understand issues with sequels and reboots because I just don't, when people use that argument of like the first one was perfect, a sequel or reboot doesn't change that movie's perfection. It sometimes, still exists on its own. No, that's true. That's, that's true. Can. But I think if it's just horrible enough, I'm sure Pixar won't make like the worst film ever that will taint the legacy of the first three. But I just, I just feel like it doesn't I, need to be touched. I f- yeah. It's a rom-com with Woody. Like, that's all. I'd be fine with that in a short. Uh, also, I want to make a shout-out to Pixar shorts, which are some of the most fun yes. and innovative uh, use of short films and animated films uh, that we've ever seen. So, shout-out Jerry's Pixar Game shorts. is the best Pixar short. Do you guys have any favorite Pixar shorts? The Man and the Chess? The Man Playing Chess? That's Jerry's Game. Jerry's yes. Game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my favorite, Probably too. Probably that's Probably that's my favorite as well because actually I think my favorite animated was that the one, is a Disney one. It's the that, uh, which one? Which one was it in front of? Was that Toy Jerry's Story? Game? Jerry's Game was one of their very first ones. Mm-hmm. No, no, but it played in front of a movie. I'm trying to remember which movie it played in front of. Which one? Jerry's Game. It played in, in like uh, in theaters. It played in front of like a movie. One of the Toy Stories. Yeah, because yeah. Jerry's Game um, was made in 1997. It won best. It won the Oscar for best animated short in '98. Maybe a Bug's um, Life. When did a Bug's Life oh, come yeah. out? Yeah, I used to own a Bug's Life. So yeah, <laughs> Jerry's Game is one of my favorites. Um, I like the bird one when they're all on the wire, and then uh, a little, and then the big bird comes down, and they all go woo. 
Yeah, and this isn't. I I thought La Luna was really pretty too. Oh yeah. Um, oh, that was one of my one. favorites, and there was that, um, Day and Night was great. That was in front of mm-hmm. Toy Story Three. Yeah, Sanjay Super Team. I was about to mention that Sanjay Super Team, um, which is interesting because you know it came out. It's there. It was the first short with like a person or family of color. It was about an an Indian boy who wanted to become a superhero who idolized like the superhero team on his um, that he like read in the comic books or something like that. So I wonder if they use their shorts as a way to workshop some of the ideas for their future films. Um, Cause Coco is a film that's coming up and it doesn't have to do very much with Sanji super short, but it, it is also their first protagonist of color because it's set in Mexico and it has, it's about a little Mexican boy. So do you guys think that like these shorts are just a way of them sort of, you know, bringing out old new stuff? new stories that they're thinking of or is it just kind of like free for all well i think it's i think it's you know the animators and storytellers who want to tell their story and that may not exactly be as lengthy as a full animated movie Mm -hmm. that you could tell like a a very powerful short in um and i and i because i don't see a lot of the shorts that actually end up being like ideas for features but i do see that they make they pave way pave the way for similar ideas mm-hmm. um like you, like you just said uh, with coco um but i do th- i think more often than not they are just like little nuggets of creativity that they can explore in 5 to 10 minutes i'm not sure how long all the shorts usually are but you know i think that they're i mean some of them are creatively amazing um yeah i so, agree yeah yeah i think i'm not, I'm not sure like, where i'm going with this <laughs> no i mean i think you're right i don't think they're like a way to test ideas for a longer film i think they are pretty separate but i think they can inspire or kind of plant seeds for future full-length features mm-hmm. um I did want to say on the note of Sanjay Super Team, as you mentioned, HT, um, Coco is the first Pixar film with a lead who's a person of color. And I will say that is one of Pixar's downsides, is that they're not great with diversity. Um, Like I mentioned, Brave was the first film with a solo female lead, and then arguably got Inside Out, which had three female leads. Um... But they're not great on that front. And, like, sometimes, you know, it's like, oh, they're fish, or it's a rat, or they're robots. But, you know, Nemo is still a boy, and Ratatouille, or Remy is still, you know, a identifying boy rat, whatever you want to put it. But, like, they really don't have great diversity when it comes to their films. I And also their their, um, voice actors, too. I think now that more recently they're getting better at it, but I feel like mm-hmm. you know Tom Hanks and Tim Allen are very much white men. Yeah. Um, uh, James uh, Albert Brooks and the guy, the kid who played Nemo, they were both white. Um, you know, the cast of Monsters Inc. Uh, you know, a lot of the cast uh, has not been super diverse either, but not on, like. 
like separating their cast from the, the characters from their from the voice actors like they've still been very white and very male I will say though that Coco has entirely Latino cast yeah. except for possibly oh who's John the, Ratzenberger John Ratzenberger who is an, a voice actor who makes a cameo in every Toy Story film so Hell yeah he does <laughs> I yeah I got to make a little visit to the Coco set and they hadn't yet written a role for John Ratzenberger when I was there, but the Uncridge said that they were thinking about it. So it, it will possibly be a little throwaway role or something. I was yeah. going to say, like, if you were you if you were there, you, when were you were there in August? September. No, August. Yeah, September. August. Mm-hmm. And the movie comes out in November, so like clearly they still had something that they could. The movie wasn't finished by that point. Yeah. There was there were actually like they showed us a early version, and there were some you know frames that weren't complete that were only like key animation and stuff like it was surprisingly kind of like down to the wire i was like isn't this movie coming out in four months <laughs> no i won't judge them though but because they worked on that movie for about five years that's crazy yeah the research and diligence that they put into it is amazing and i'm really excited for coco because of that so i want to yeah. talk about how yeah well we talked a little bit how about how coco not coco Pixar was possibly plateauing. I feel like Inside Out and now Coco could be a new chapter for Pixar. Um, I haven't seen the entirety of Coco yet, but I will say it has a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. And the half hour that I did see was so delightful and lovely. And I think it will be, it will make out to be one of Pixar's great films too, one of the upper echelon. So I really think that they're going to be on the upswing again. Especially with the anticipated Incredibles two, which was the first one was so was such an underrated classic. Um, there, there's a few other projects in the making, but yeah, I did want to touch on a little bit the criticisms that they do receive. I agree about like diver- diversity, but also about female characters, which is I think the hugest hole for them, because you know Brave was their attempt to reach out to that by you know doing sort of like a token disney princess style role and you know because disney that formula had worked with them for years but for some reason it didn't quite click when pixar did it i think they couldn't exactly get the heart down that disney was able to do for many of their princess films um so i hope that pixar will be better with female characters and possibly with you know female characters in in their future films um because you know it's it's hard to find female characters in live action movies. Animated movies are kind of like the last bastion that you can find, um, and Disney does so well with it. Uh, Studio Ghibli does incredibly well with it. Pixar is still kind of the last little boys' club in that animation um, sort of corner. You know, I'm not going to include all the other indie, independent animated studios because that's too many. Um, but yeah, uh, what do you guys think about the future of Pixar? I think it's bright. You know, I think that we can we can see from I mean Inside Out was definitely one of the best movies of 2015. Now never, you know, never not only animated but like in total total should have been nominated for best of, picture. Exactly. Um obviously The Good Dinosaur was a bit of a misfall and I I mean I heard Cars 3 was okay. I heard Cars um, 3 was the best Cars movie since Cars 1. <laughs> <laughs> okay well i mean that's i like also saying that that's <laughs> like saying justice league is the best one since now you can't include wonder woman is the best one the so, best movie I don't outside know. of wonder woman <laughs> uh, yeah it's the best movie outside of wonder i don't know um 
we're recording this a day before Justice League premieres Which and has a 36 all that. On Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, it's 36 now. It was 37 an hour oh, ago. Um, wow, it went down. Yeah. So, okay, back to Pixar. So, I think I think they're on an upswing. You know, I feel like they can they can do whatever they want, and they have the they have the money, and they have the power, and the writers, and the animators. So, you kind of have to think like they can't. I mean, I don't think any movie of them of theirs has been absolute trash. Mm-mm. Um. So I think that, you know, they make good movies. Some of them are great, but I think for the most part, they make good movies. Um, and I'm excited for the, f- for the future. I think I've heard, I think that at D23, they were like listing off, you know, concept ideas for future movies. And they sound very, like, very high concept. And I'm excited. You know, I think Inside Out is one of the most high concept movies of the last 20, 20 years. And... They did an amazing job with that. So if they go for like less, uh, standard mo- animated movies, like more stylized, more high concept, I think they can really, really do an amazing job. And from what I've seen of Coco, it looks gorgeous. It's and it so looks beautiful. Like, it looks di- so, you know, so much different, you know, because it's all about, um, like the Day of the Dead and all that. And like there's a lot of lights and exact, like HD showing up concept art. And that looks amazing. I'm so excited to see that in, re- in you know, on, on screen in the theater. So I think Pixar's got a bright future. I'm not, I'm not worried about them at all. Yeah, I agree. I think the sequels have kind of weighed down on them a bit because, as Willoughby said, they felt very standard, very safe. Um, but I think Inside Out and Coco are signs that like the creative juices are still flowing there. They still have a dedication to do really interesting original storytelling, um, even if it does take years. Um, Willoughby touched on this, but yeah, D23, they announced one of their upcoming original films, which I got to see a bit of, and they talked about it, and it's set in this fantasy world uh, with trolls and unicorns and mythical creatures like that, and then they start getting technology. Um, And so it's this merging of these two cultures. So, like, they live in mushroom houses, but they have satellites in their roofs for TVs. Mm. Um, unicorns are considered pests in this society. Like they eat the garbage and they're like raccoons. Um, and so that's kind of, it's about these two brothers. So again, lacking a female lead, but it's about these two brothers who go on uh, this like adventure together. It's based on the director's, um, his real life where he and his brother, their dad died when they were young and they found like a tape of their dad's voice. And that's kind of what gave him the idea for the film. And so again, it shows you, you know, how personal, how emotional um, their stories are. But so I think this whole fantasy meeting technology world will be really cool. And I think it just shows that even if it does take them a few years between each one, there's still a lot of originality and ambition at Pixar. And I don't think it's time to give up on them quite yet or ever really. Yeah. And they're ever, they're, sort of director slate is ever evolving um so with coco for example they have lee uncridge directing with adrian molina uh, co-directing and adrian molina this will be his his first sort of directorial um role he's beforehand been like a storyboard artist and a writer but they have this sort of system where they have someone who, co- who co-directs with a 
experienced director and then like they kind of raise them up through the ranks and everything like that it's kind of an old school way of doing it but it's also a way of introducing new talent and i like especially that they're introducing more talent of of color more diverse talent like adrian molina and hopefully some more women too because yes. i think that's a way for women and and female characters to actually be introduced into pixar films agreed so i think that's a good way to wrap up our pixar discussion um Let's move on to the last segment of our episode. I really, 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 really like you. But I need to tell you something. Anya, why don't you go first? All right. Um, so I really like the Game Night trailer. I knew that would be a really like. <laughs> I actually, I had a couple other ones that I was weighing, but this one, I've actually watched it a few times. I like love it so much. Um, so Game Night is an upcoming comedy uh, starring Jason Bateman, Rachel McAdams. Uh, is it Lamorne Morris? Is that his? Yes. Yeah, Lamorne Morris from New Girl. Who plays uh, Winston. Winston. Yeah, Winston. Kyle Chandler. Um... Jeffy Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Yeah, Kyle Bunbury from uh, Pitch, or Kylie Bunbury from Pitch. And so the premise is basically a group of friends meet regularly for game night. And one night they find themselves investigating an actual real murder mystery. And I remember when this movie was announced, like last year or the year before, and casting started. And it sounded like a very kind of generic comedy um, but I was immediately interested because my favorite actress of all time, Rachel McAdams, is in it. So I was like, all right, I'm going to keep an eye on this. And then the trailer happened. And it is bonkers. It is it buck is just wild. Balls to the wall, wild. And I love it. I love <laughs> it because they're not just playing the safe, goofy comedy movie. They are like committing to this absurd concept. And, like, taking it to the extreme. They're not doing 100%. They're doing, like, 150%. And that's how I think you make a really fun, ridiculous comedy. That's why Tropic Thunder is so good. And so I love the Game Night trailer. I love that my girl, Rachel McAdams, is in a lead like this. Yeah, girl. Um, She's also in Disobedience with Rachel Wise. So I'm like, she has a drama coming up and a, and a comedy. So I'm like... She is going places, but she has been her whole career, but people have not given her the real chance. I have a lot of feelings about Rachel McAdams and her career. I agree um, with you, Anya. So right? I've, I'd never heard of this movie until you dropped the trailer in our chat feed uh, like three days ago. And I was stunned that this movie existed just because it looks so buck wild that I could not believe my eyes. Yeah, it's kind of like, that Tina Fey, Steve Carroll movie, Date Night. But Which like, is an underrated drugs. classic. <laughs> yeah. But it's like that times 11. Yeah. And that's why I'm excited. Because like, it commits. And like we'll just go there. It won't hesitate. At least I hope so. At least that's what the trailer looks like. So I am really excited for Game Night. And I'm even more excited for Rachel McAdams. Yay. I will go next. Okay. Uh, go for it. I finished Stranger Things. Yay! <laughs> While you were in Thailand, you missed thing. the whole thing. I know. That was the only pop culture thing I was actually able to catch up with in the past 
uh, week because I was so jet lagged from Thailand, which I had a great time at, by the way. Good. Um, let's go to the annual Lantern Festival, which is the Loi Kathrong Festival. Um, just think, you know, that scene in, Thai- in uh, Tangled and that with more fire uh, raining down on your head <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of crowds, but it was a lot of fun and the camaraderie there was really great. I have some great pictures that I have not yet uploaded. I also played with elephants, so that was fun. Yes, um, those photos were great. Yes, it was so cool. But yeah, they had a professional photographer there and thankfully they had a really good candid moment with me because otherwise it was just kind of like not great face photos, but had a good time in Thailand, and I got to catch up with Stranger Things when I got back, when I was not sleeping. And it's good, although it's not quite as memorable as season one. I'm, it's already kind of, like, fading from my memory a little bit, yeah. just because it wasn't... Season one has such novelty. It did have such, have such novelty, but I think it's also it also was just, like, a stronger storytelling concept to begin with, because they had the three storylines divided by the three genres, essentially. Whereas here, it's more of a mixed bag. Um, it only really came together for me when, at the end, when they kind of did like sort of a Goonies light sort of thing with Steve leading, you know, the bunch of kids. And that for me was like when I was like, okay, so they're kind of, this is kind of very Goonies-esque. I'm really enjoying these scenes. Um, Steve, MVP of the whole season and season yes, one. I've been saying yes. it since the beginning. I know. I'm the OG yeah. Steve Harrington fan. <laughs> And yes, we are all we are all late to the party. You are the first. True. So yeah, I, season two, I I liked moments of it. Uh, I really liked, you know, all the Hopper moments. He was he just like shined in this season. Like he was Undeniably great in the first my one. Fave. Yeah, and he was great in the first season. But like here, his just like his dad bod charm just came out in droves. Yep. And um, ooh, um, Noah Schnapp who played Will was the MVP of this season. Like I mean, fair. You know, he he made he made up for not appearing at all in the first season and <laughs> just like went to town, took the took the um title of best child star away from Millie Bobby Brown and just like went to town with like his sort of possessed possessed exorcism scenes. So it was it it was a good season with like good moments. Not not terrible and not Better, not great, but you know, sort of just an enjoyable time. It's good. It has good rewatch value, which is like the important thing I think for Stranger Things. Although I want to ask you, did you hate Episode Seven as much as the rest of us did? I kind of just skimmed through it. Oh, I I knew I knew how terrible it was going to be. Oh, so awful. It yeah, it was not good. But I didn't have you know a violent reaction towards it because i knew it was happening and i was yeah. like this is just a knockoff your, your expectations were set pretty low so they you were could... like the lowest yeah yeah so it that was... happened with me too like when people were like this is the worst piece of television ever mm-hmm. and i watched it i was like well it's not great i mean i thought it was it pretty definitely, terrible it definitely deviates from like the momentum that the, yeah, this, the kind show of, had been building up it kind of just like brings that momentum to a screeching halt and then throws yeah. that momentum yeah. like in a fire <laughs> it does a weird like this is like the luke skywalker empire strikes back on dagobah thing but not well yeah yeah you know yeah 11 was there was also like a weird moment in the episode in that's in that where it was like reminding me of x-men first class yeah that's what for me too I the, was like, this is like, an like the rage knockoff. and serenity part i yeah. was like this is like did they did they watch x-men first class before writing this episode yeah it wasn't good it was just it was unnecessary and just 
not well done. I think it could have been done well if they had paced it and structured it differently. Maybe. I'm not sure how, maybe like spending not an entire episode devoted to it, but like part of the B or C plots of of, of like a longer stretch of episodes. Or just not introducing those well, characters until the next season. Yeah, well like, you know, those, you know what show has done those sort of uh, solo outing episodes really well? Avatar and Korra. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Avatar had Zuko alone. Like Korra alone yeah, and, and Zuko Korra alone. alone. Oh my god. Zuko alone is still one of my favorite half hours of television ever. It does so well the sort of Ronin uh, lone redemption arc story in just 30 minutes. And it's amazing. It does what like Western movies all want to do. And it does it in half an hour with an animated medium. And that's what I think episode seven of stranger things wanted to do but it just yeah they wanted to do 11 alone and i don't think it worked as well as no. they wanted it to they should have looked to avatar instead of x-men yeah oh mm-hmm. so willoughby what does your really like for this week you know guys sometimes you just want to go where everybody knows your name and of course i'm talking about the hit 80s classic cheers <laughs> what? um I've been watching Cheers for the first time ever. Um, I had never seen an episode before two weeks ago. And, you know, I was looking around on Netflix for, like, the new, the next show to binge, because if you guys have been listening for the past two years or have known me for longer than that, you know I like to binge things. And when I commit to a binge, I commit to a binge. And so I was like, well, I don't really, you know, I'm not really in the mood for, like, Better Call Saul or, like, a heavy drama. Like, I want something light and fluffy. And so I have this book called TV, parentheses, the book, by Matt Zeller Seitz and Alan Seppenwall, two amazing film recappers, I mean, TV recappers and TV reviewers. Um, They collaborated on a book about what they believe, you know, is the, you know, objectively the best television ever. And so they have, like, a, a list of 100 shows, and then they have a bunch of, like, runner-up, runners-up, and, you know, shows that are still airing. And Cheers was, like, their number three show of all time. So I'm like, well, well obviously, you know, and it's very critically acclaimed. It won a bunch of Emmys. It, you know, it's very po- popularized. The Sam and Diane, literal, you know, back and forth of, like, you know, angry couple, but also they're in love with each other. It's that sort of weird, problematic, this is very problematic, <laughs> um, relationship that, like, New Girl just completely took. Watching the first three seasons of Cheers, I've watched the first three seasons of Cheers within the last week and a half. New Girl took the Sam and Diane model to a T. Like, I'm impressed by how much they, like, were like, we're gonna do this co- completely, like, the same thing. Like, wow. Um... But at the same time, Cheers is very, very good. Like, the, I'm, I was actually really surprised by how much I was laughing, like, all the time. Like, it's a super well-written sitcom. And I really, you know, it's so, like, sharp and witty. And I was, I was kind of thrown by it, because I'm like, I'm, I was used to it being, I was, I had this idea of it being, like, less than what people make it out to be like you know like the leg like legacy yeah. of like you know you're looking back and it, it maybe did hasn't held up as well and obviously there's a lot of like social norms that were in the 80s that don't hold up as well they try to combat homophobia 
and they they do have a an interesting episode about it where like they, the um the regulars don't want the bar to become a gay bar um but Diane is like a champion of progressiveness and you know kind of like calls them on their bullshit and it was like a very I was actually very impressed with like the progressive nature of it but also like you know just like the whole there's a lot of like social norms in the show that are outdated yeah. at this point um which it's a product of its time you have to give over that um but at the same but the writing the the jokes are funny like the jokes are jokes they're not pop culture references um they're not referencing other things that well, you know, it's not Big Bang Theory. It's definitely not that at all. <laughs> I appreciate um, that. You know, uh, like if you cut out this, if you cut out the laugh track in Cheers, you're still gonna get laughs. Like you know, it's it's not like Big Bang Theory where they pause. Um, so I'm very happy to be watching Cheers, and it's you know it it's comfort food for the brain, and I'm three seasons in. Um, I've already gotten to the part where they meet Fraser Crane. He's like a semi-regular. Oh my god, now. I forgot that's where um, he originated. Yeah, he showed up in the third season and then didn't leave television for 20 years. Fun fact, I used to watch Fraser. I like Fraser pretty oh, regularly. Yeah, we all do. I used to watch I used to watch Fraser and then when I found out that Fraser was a spin-off character of Cheers, it blew my mind. I was like, you can you yeah. can do that? <laughs> you can you know, it was like the first idea I thought of. The first time I ever heard of like, I didn't realize Frasier was a. Spin-off Although it was only because it had already been. Su- cured, right? Uh, and his ex-wife, who shows up every oh, okay. once in a while, who was his wife okay. in Cheers. So there's there's like, but um, and then Cheers regulars show up in guest star appearances because he moves to from Seattle. Boston to yeah. back to Seattle or something. But you know, I grew up with Frasier, and I was like, wait a minute. He's he's he comes from Cheers. It's wild, um, and apparently I'm about to get to the part where Kirstie Alley and Woody Harrelson show up. Very excited for that what? because that's those are like you know, two actors who you know I haven't seen do things. I mean Woody Harrelson, but I haven't seen Kirstie Alley do anything in a while. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm uh, really liking binging Cheers. All right, well that is our episode. If you guys have any thoughts on Pixar or Cheers, or Stranger Things, or the trailer for Game Night, definitely come chat with us. And where can they do that, Willoughby? You can find us on Facebook if you search for us there. We're also on Twitter, at Falcon Podcast. Our blog is millennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com. We're on SoundCloud, where you can listen to us there. And we're also on iTunes and Google Play, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. So please do. And where can they find you guys? You can find me at htranbui on Twitter. You can find me at Anya Crittenton on Twitter. And you can find me at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter. All right. Thanks for joining us, guys. Bye. Bye.